Philippians chapter 3. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If anyone else thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. <coughs> I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Well, the year is about 60 AD, and uh, 30 years after the Lord Jesus Christ had been crucified, resurrected and gone back to heaven, churches had been established in every part of the Roman Empire, in the great cities, and in a prison cell, under arrest in Rome, is an older man, the Apostle Paul. He's in a prison, he's chained up. He says in this passage, I have lost everything. He lost um, it, his freedom, he lost his cash, lost his money. I don't think his health was too good, as we find out in other epistles. Uh, he lost his friendship with the Jewish nation. He's lost his status. He'd lost his position. And he lost it all uh, for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he picks up his pen when he's in prison. And he writes to the church that he founded in Philippi some years ago. And in this passage, as much as in any other, we have an insight into the uh, heart and the life and the mind of the Apostle Paul. What makes you tick? What things do you aim for? What things do I aim for? As we gather around this passage tonight, we look into, inside the mind of the great Apostle Paul and we find out uh, what was making him the man that he was. In this passage, he gives us, verses uh, 1 to 7, a warning. It's amazing, you know, how much of the New Testament is warning. Often when Paul picked up his pen, it was to give believers a warning of some sort or another. A lot of the New Testament is warning, gives a warning in this passage. A warning to heed. He tells us of a righteousness that we can wear. A righteousness to wear. And he tells us of an example that we must follow. And we're going to look at those points in order tonight as we uh, gather round God's word. Now, 
he uses very strong language in this passage. The first thing he says here in, uh, in verse 2, he says, Beware of dogs. Beware of dogs. Who is he talking about? He's talking about false teachers who would come into the church and seek to turn it away, who had come into the church and were seeking to turn it away from the simplicity which was in Christ. And do you know what's been the greatest weapon that Satan has used against the church down through the history as being false teaching? And Paul warns the church and warns the believers against false teaching. You know, that's something for us to learn from tonight. Have you ever read the book, you know, Pilgrim's Progress? It's a great book. Good for every Christian to have read it. Used to be the most popular book, along with the Bible at one point. And it's the story of a man who's on a journey from earth, the city of destruction where he lives, and he's going to heaven. But along the way, there's lots of dangers. There's lots of problems. There's lots of people who come and try and take him away from the way, away from the path, and lead him astray. False teaching. And do you know what, dear friends? That's a picture of our lives as well. If you're a Christian tonight, you were once in the city of destruction, under the wrath and sentence of God for your sin, but you've been saved. You're on the way to heaven. But there's things you've got to beware of. There's enemies out there who will seek to rob you of your faith in Christ. That was Paul's concern for the uh, Philippian church, and that's why he wrote these letters. He says, look, there's something to beware of. Beware of dogs. Beware of the false teaching that's trying to undermine the gospel. And he's talking in those days, it was Jewish teachers who were coming in and saying that you needed to be circumcised. And he said, beware of the mutilation. He said, we are the circumcision, the Christians, who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said, we worship God in the Spirit. Not in the flesh. True worship is not about form and ritual and rites and robes and all those things. It's about, it's a spiritual worship. We must worship God in spirit and in truth. When Paul was writing these words, there was a beautiful temple at Jerusalem. Beautiful, full of gold and ornate architecture. A high priest with wonderful robes in there. Paul says, no. This is not the way. Uh, we are the ones who worship God. We are the, the Jews, he says, who worship God in the Spirit. And true worship is centered on Christ. We rejoice in Christ Jesus, who he is and what he's done. It's all about Christ. Not about us, not about what we do, not about our religion, not about our, our, our ceremonies or whatever they may be. True worship is spiritual and it's centred on Christ. Do you know, dear friends, the Reformation was perhaps the greatest revival that took place in the history of the world. And the church before the Reformation was full of incense, candles, dance, drama, music, rites, robes, bells and smells and other things like that. But when the reformers came in, they swept it all away and it was replaced with spirit-filled men preaching from the word of God and that revival swept over Europe and touched the world and Paul's concern here is for the gospel in the church at Philippi that it might be on the right lines and a warning to us 
False teaching is around us today. And we need to be those who, like pilgrim, don't leave the path. But we uh, keep our worship spiritual, centered on Christ. No confidence in outward ceremony, in our race, in our family, in our religion, in our observance, in our good works. Paul uses himself as the illustration and says this. If anyone wants to trust in these things, he said, I've got more confidence. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. Every Jewish male is. From the stock of Israel. I was in the tribe of Benjamin. You know, there was 12 tribes in Israel. But in the apostasy, only two remained faithful. Judah and Benjamin. He said, I was in the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Touching the law, a Pharisee. The strictest of the Jewish sects. Concerning zeal, he said, I was even defending my religion by persecuting the church. He said, there was no one who could say anything against me. But all of these things, I count them as dung, as refuse, because something else has come in that's far more important, and it's Christ. And I want to win Christ. I want to belong to Christ. I want to serve Christ. I want to know Christ. And Paul warns the church, don't be sidetracked with false teaching. Keep the main thing, the main thing. Worship Christ spiritually, Him as central, and put no confidence in the other things. They cannot save you. If they could have saved anyone, they could have saved me, but they didn't. He said, we need to have Christ. Let me just pause there and ask a question. What sort of a a church do you go to, friends? I hope it's one where Christ is honoured and where the Bible is opened and where the Word of God is taught. We need to make sure, you know, that we're under sound ministry, where Christ is loved, where the Bible is believed in its truth and where sound doctrine is upheld. We need to be those who uh, recognise and turn away from false teaching. Friend, if you're in a gospel church, rejoice and put your shoulder to the wheel of that church. But if you're not, should you really be there tonight? Paul's challenge is that there's things to beware of in our Christian lives and he gives us a warning about those. And then he comes on to a lovely section in this uh, book, uh, this letter, and he speaks about a righteousness that is provided for us to wear. A righteousness to wear. He says this, I count all things loss, but for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the, lo- the loss of all things, and do count them as refuse that I might win Christ, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. He's in his chains, and yet he's saying this, I've got a righteousness which is not my own, which has come to me from God. There's two righteousnesses in this passage. One is a righteousness of man, and he says it doesn't work. But there's a righteousness of God that Paul says he's got through faith. It's provided at free cost to him. 
at great cost to God, but at free to freely a cost free to us, but great cost to him. Sometimes I like to share the illustration of the bankrupt man. Do you know that story? The man who had a business and he was losing money, and each day his debt was getting worse and worse, and he owed more and he owed more, he was in the red, and each day his debt was getting deeper. And one day the bank manager came along, justifiably angry that this man had had lost all the money. All the money he'd loaned him, he'd lost it, and it was getting worse and worse day by day. What the bank manager did was, he took out his checkbook, and he wrote a check, and he cancelled all that man's debt. And the man was forgiven all of his debt and brought back to zero. But you know, the gospel is better than that. Do you know what the gospel is? The gospel is this. It's as if the bank manager then puts all his money in that man's account. And he makes him in infinite credit. Do you know, dear friends, we are in debt to God because of our sin. And yet, when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we don't just have forgiveness. We do have forgiveness. The Bible teaches, and in this verse, that all of the righteousness of Christ is put into our account. It's provided free to us. And you know what, friends? It's no ordinary righteousness. It is God's righteousness that is imputed or counted to the believer. When you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, two things happen. All your sin is put upon him. And we see him on the cross, covered in blood and shame. The shame of the cross, dying for our sin. When I believe in him, all of my sin is placed on him. And all of his righteousness, his perfect, divine righteousness, is placed upon me. All the good things that he did, all the things he said, all the person, all the righteousness in his person, is placed upon me. And I become justified in his sight. When a person believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, they become as righteous as God is. Shall I say that again? When we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we become as righteous as God is, because all of the righteousness of Christ, who is God, is imputed to us. That's how good the gospel is. And that's what Paul is saying here. I want to be found in Christ. I want to be in Christ. Not having my own righteousness, which is of the Lord, all those things I used to do, but having his righteousness, which is provided, which is perfect, and which is put on by faith. Girls, ladies, it's lovely to be at a wedding, isn't it? And to see the bride when she comes in the church, and that dress is spotless. No stains. No spots. Beautifully white, normally, without a problem. And there it is. A perfect, a perfect dress coming up the aisle for the, for the wedding. Do you know, the Bible teaches this. When we become a Christian, we enter into a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. We become his bride. He becomes our head, our husband, spiritually. Which marriage is a picture. And he's 
made for us a beautiful dress, as it were, to wear. A righteousness that cannot be faulted, that's perfect. And we put it on by faith when we become a Christian. In Christ, you are righteous, justified with a righteousness that's not your own, but given to you freely, provided by our Lord Jesus Christ, and put on by faith. Let me challenge each one here. Have you, dear friends, it's possible, even on a night like this, that there's some here who've never put on that gospel righteousness for themselves. Don't delay. Trust in Christ. Tonight, before you leave this place, turn to him from your sin and trust in him and ask him for that righteousness that he provides freely, perfectly, by faith. It's there. You put it on and you're saved for time and for eternity. He gives us in this passage a warning to heed, a righteousness to wear. But then Paul shares his heart even more in verse 10. He says, I want the righteousness which is of God by faith that I may know him. That I may know him. Here Paul is opening up his heart. Paul the prisoner. He's telling us what drives him. What his great aim is to know Christ. And actually, for a believer, there's nothing more important than this. This is what you and I were made for. The Catechism says man's chief end is to know God and enjoy Him forever. Jesus said, this is eternal life that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. To know God is the best thing in life. Jeremiah said, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his strength. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and he knows me. The possibility of it, that you should know Christ. The privilege of it, that you, a sinner, should know him the sinless Son of God and the power of it to take you from a life of sin and put you as a glorified Son of God in heaven that I may know Him. On Monday I've got the privilege to go overseas again for my job and God willing I should be travelling to the US to present some work over there. It will be a seven hour journey on a jumbo jet flying at about 600 miles an hour, a mile every six seconds, and the 3,000 miles or whatever across the Atlantic takes about seven hours to complete. Do you know if I was to stay on that same jumbo jet and fly at that same speed to the sun, that would take over 10 years at that speed. That's how far the sun is from Earth. If I was to travel to the nearest star on that jumbo jet, impossible of course, over 
250,000 years. That's the nearest star. The vastness of it all. That I may know Him who made this. The possibility of a man knowing God. That's what Paul's thinking of here. The vastness of Christ. The one who is all powerful. Who holds it all together. The one who is all knowing. He knows all about you. All about me and all about everyone alive now. And all about everyone who's ever lived. He knows the name of every star. He's the one who's all present. He's here in this room now. All of him. And yet all of him is in all of space that he has made. He's everywhere. That I may know him. He's eternal. There never was a time when there isn't here. He wasn't here. There's never going to be a time when he's not going to be here. And yet that I may know him. And the privilege of it that this God of everything wants you to know him. And he wants me to know him. Do you know, who's the most important person you've ever met? I don't know if there's anyone here who's ever met royalty. Earlier this year, at a place where I work, we had a visit from the queen, sorry, the princess of Thailand. One of my students is a Thai student. So I had the opportunity to go and meet the princess. Not very long. She was had to see a lot of people. Just a handshake and just enough time for me to give her a Bible in Thai. We pray for that. That's my claim to fame. Only royalty I've met. But you know, I, she had bodyguards and other things around her. But she came to me and just a minute and then she was gone. No chance for me to initiate any friendship with her. For her to initiate a friendship with me was possible to stop and pause and talk but not the other way round. But you know, God has become our friend, hasn't he? You are my friend, said Jesus. The God of everything. The friend that I may know him. The privilege of it, dear friends. The love of Christ. The friend of sinners. And the friend of each believer tonight. The possibility, the privilege, and the purpose of it. Paul says these words. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. If by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. What is your final destiny as a believer? It is this. That when the Lord Jesus Christ returns to earth, you will be made like him. A resurrected, glorified body forever with the Lord. You see, when a person believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, he's not only justified, forgiven for all his sin. That would be wonderful, wouldn't it? It's more than that. He gives us all his righteousness. And that's wonderful. But it's more than that. He comes and lives within our lives by His Spirit and helps us to live the way we should. But it's more than that. He brings us into His 
family as his sons and his daughters and makes us co-heirs with Christ. Can God have done anything more for you and me than this? The serpent said to Eve, you shall be as gods if you eat this fruit. And that was a lie because she died and Adam died and we all died. But dear friends, in the gospel, when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, it takes us to be co-heirs with the Son of God, the Eternal One, forever with the Lord. The purpose of the knowledge of Christ that we might know him forever. Do you know, I don't know if you've heard of Cecil Rhodes. He was a very famous statesman in the 19th century. Rhodesia, as it was, as it was called, Zimbabwe now, is named after him. He made an absolute fortune in diamonds. Died at 49. And in his will, he didn't leave a penny to his kids. Isn't that terrible? I often say to mine that, don't worry about that, lads, I haven't got enough money, but if I did, I would leave it to you anyway. But, do you know, God, the Lord Jesus Christ, has made you an heir. Not of a load of diamonds, but an heir of God himself, who owns everything. That I may know him. And the practicalities of it. Verse 11, if by any means, says Paul, I might attain to the resurrection of the dead, Christ is to be sought. That's the meaning of this verse. You and I are to seek Christ. How do we do it? Well, he's given us his word. The revelation of God to man. God's final word to man All that we need to know, the sufficiency, the inspired, infallible, inerrant, sufficient word of God. If we need to know, we want to know Christ, we start there, don't we? We'll never know Christ if we don't know his word. Dear friends, let me challenge you. Do you make it your priority to meet with God each day? Do you have that regular, determined, dogged, disciplined, quiet time? It's the main thing I learned from my week on beach mission. The first time I went, years and years ago, they got up and they met with Christ in the morning. Dear friends, if we were no Christ, that's where we start. Can I challenge you, when you leave this conference, or even before you leave the conference, tomorrow morning, to rise up on the Lord's day and meet with him before you meet with others, in his word, in prayer, that you may know him. And when you leave the conference and you go back to the hustle and bustle and early burly of life and work and studies and family and all the rest of it, that you might know him in his word each day. What a challenge it was to hear of Trevor saying he read the Bible over 40 times. But why not make it your aim as a young believer to read the word and read it again and read it again that you might know him. You'll never let her know him without it. Remember Mary? She sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. We need to do that, don't we? We learn of Christ in the school of prayer. Do you have a prayer list? A daily, a weekly routine? 
that you pray for each day. I challenge you, dear friends, when you go from the conference to have a prayer list every day, some ones that you pray for, maybe a different group every day, so you don't get, as it were, bored with it, but you have a change each day and pray each week, each week of your life, for prayerful, prayerful goals. We learn of Christ in the school of prayer, the one who sometimes continued all night in prayer to God. Do you go to the weekly prayer meeting? You meet God there, you know. Jesus said, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst. We meet him there in a way that we don't meet him when we're by ourselves. And when you go, do you pray? Do you pray? I challenge your friends to go to the weekly prayer meeting in your church, in your wild branch or in your group, whatever it is, get along to prayer once a week with the other believers and pray. Christ is to be sought in his word, in prayer, in service. Can I put you on the spot again? If I was to come down and ask you, what are you doing for the Lord? What would you say? Would you be able to have some task that you're serving him with in your church, in your group, in your fellowship, in your wild branch or whatever? What are you doing for Christ? He is known as we obey him in our service. You know when he said, the final great command, he said, Lo, I am with you always. He said that when he commanded them to go out and evangelize. And you know as well as I, that in those times when we speak up for him evangelistically, he's with us. We know his presence and we know the thrill of his service. Lo, I'm with you always. He's especially near when we make him known. Christ is to be sought. Sin is to be turned from. And suffering is not to be spurned. We know Christ sometimes in the school of suffering. It cost, it will cost us to know him. It cost Paul. He could say, I've suffered the loss of everything. But I don't mind. Because I know Christ. We've heard of Helen Roosevelt. Who suffered brutalization. But she didn't mind because of Christ. And some lessons you might have to learn and I might have to learn in the school of suffering. It cost him to know us. And it may cost us to know him. In Oxford, on the speak out there, privileged to go there this year. And Vinnie took me down the road there in Balliol Road just outside Balliol College where there's a, a plaque and a, short, and a bit of the shopping precinct that's unpaved cobbled and it was on that spot the two martyrs in our country burned to death for Christ the suffering in his service as well my final illustration is of a small boy in communist Poland a few years ago now and he played the violin and uh, he had to play before the examination and he played a lovely tune Oh How I Love Jesus and he played it on the violin and he was doing well and all the judges thought it was great and they were all giving him good marks because he played it well Oh How I Love Jesus and then one of them asked him what was the song and he said it's a Christian song. 
know how I love Jesus because he first loved me. And all their marks went to zero and the lad failed. As he went out disappointed, rejected, said to his parents, told them what had happened. And he said, but I'm going to enter next year and I'm going to play the same song. And you know, sometimes it does cost us to be a Christian. But let's be those who spurn it like Paul did. I've suffered the loss of all things that I might know Christ. He is worth it. So beware of false teaching. Put on the righteousness of Christ. If you've never put it on before, put it on tonight. And if you have, rejoice in it. All that you have as a believer. And the knowledge of Christ is greater than all things. It is excellent. Let us make this our goal. For his name's sake. Amen.